SFS podcast number 36 Coming live just an hour's break I feel a bit um, stoned off all the diazepam that I have consumed um, It's made me feel very stoned But um, I like it I like it a lot. As I record this podcast, it's going to be the most boring one ever. As I have taken 20 milligram of diazepam and are laying down on the sofa, smoking on some Viper Liper. At least I'm not smoking weed, so I'm not stoned that way. I'm stoned in a medical way. But, um... The thing is, um... I don't get anxious. At the same time, as if I take 20 milligram at once, I become, like, lazy. And, uh... In my own type of world, like, um, I remember this time I went to Gas World, I had some gas, and, um, I was just hurrying around the house, you know, just, um, chilling, and I had two border collies, and, um, eventually everything went crazy, um, there was like na- native Indians chasing me. I felt like I was in a field. This is all happening in my own house. I felt like I was in a field and native Indians chasing me with um, big um, bamboo sticks. I don't know why because they don't carry bamboo sticks. But they had bamboo sticks. And they were chasing me through this field. And I fell in this swamp. And I thought I was drowning. And um, I was halfway down the swamp, and then my dog Bob came and rescued me from it. But really, um, I had trouble breathing. But I thought I was going down the swamp, but really, I was having trouble breathing sitting on the couch, I found out later. But then, I think, they went to bed, and um, I went... As I was, say I was in Gas World, the Indian, I got away from the Indians by falling in a swamp basically and um, nearly dying in there so they lost me so I was relieved of that but I was still all muddy as fuck. So I walked down some country lanes and got on a horse and rode back and now I'm in a village in um, northwest England called Appleby. I went into um, a pub. Um, it was all normal, but then everyone started, um, charging towards me. There was like 15 people charged towards me. So I went in this other room, this other room, they had a ring and a match was going on between none other than Superfly Jimmy Snooker and Andre the Giant. And as I looked... Andre the Giant was behind me 
and pick me up and threw me in the ring and then next thing I know I was met with fire I saw fire and then coming up from hell was a clothesline and it was Bradshaw I suffered the clothesline from hell um, basically and what happened really was I was in the kitchen and um, a fire happened because I, 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 I was playing with the uh, the stove um, I must have turned the stove on and left it on or something but that's why I probably had the trip of well I don't know why I had the Andre the Giant trip where he put his big hands on me and threw me in the ring then I saw fire like yes I'm in hell now and then the clothesline happened and then that's when I saw Bradshaw um, Bradshaw from the Attitude Era just met with a clothesline from hell and then I woke up and there was fire in the kitchen and then I went back into Gas World and then Vince McMahon said to me YOU'RE FIRED I don't know why but I was fired so I think I got kicked out of Gas World and that's when I woke up in the morning so I'm not going back to Gas World because um taking gas because I'll end up seeing Vince McMahon and he'll say that I am fired <laughs> and um yeah gas world was a quite a fucked up experience Especially the clothesline from hell, because there was fire at first, and there was fire in the kitchen. That's when I suffered the clothesline. First, I was running from the Indians, and then I ended up in a swamp. But really, I couldn't breathe. But I imagined to get away from the Indians, and then got the clothesline from hell. Woke up with a fire in the kitchen, and then went back into Gas World and said, "You're fired." So they didn't want me there. So um, Vince, Mac um, I woke up in the morning, and um, Grandma explained everything what happened. Satan rest her soul. Now we're going to go into an audio book that I wrote. I know I've done GSP audio book, but now I got to do a bit on the history of Pablo Escobar and things that you might not know about him well if it's true or not is my understanding it is true but you know different books say different things different information say different things about the man, the myth, some people call a legend, some people call a terrorist, some people call the richest, one of the richest men ever, 
some people call him the Robin Hood of all Robins that exist in the world. Well, this book, this information tells you about him in a different light. More of a normal human type person. Um, and his relationships that he had behind the public's back. So, at the presidential palace this was, Gavi Villa was president, didn't hesitate when he heard his friend had been taken hostage. Why in the world had Ecuador gone into the jail? What a stupid thing to do. The president had planned a trip to Spain for that evening to take part in celebrations marketing the 500th anniversary of Columbus' arrival in the Americas. He had postponed the trip in the afternoon and as the crisis of the La Cathedral had worsened, now he demanded that the general outside the prison attack immediately and the general refused. He refused. Gavria ordered Defence Minister Rafael Pardo to send Special Forces Unit to Envigado immediately to make the assault. Speechwriters at the palace began to working on the draft of a statement the President would make to a nation following morning. In the statement, President would say, Unfortunately, Ecuador Mendoza, his friend and Vice Minister of Justice, and Hernando Navas, the National Director of Prisons, has been tragically killed in a shootout. When the Special Forces Units arrived at the El Dorado Airport in Bogota, there was no pilots, one hand to fly the C-130 transport, so they waited for the pilots. It was 4.30 a.m. in the morning when the strike force finally descended towards Joso Maria Cordova Airport in Rio Negro outside the medallion. The dense fog prevented them from landing for a time. It was early in the morning before they could start up the mountain in trucks. On the way up, regular army units stared them along the long road which took them back down to the airport. The blundering progress of the strike force was being reported on radio and TV nationally and observed by prisoners inside the La Cathedral and their hostages. They all waited in states of anxious boredom. How do you manage to keep so slender? Mendoza was asked by one of the gunmen, a thick, dark-haired man with a wide belly. I'm vegetarian. What should I eat to lose weight? He asked. Mendoza told him to try eating more fruits and vegetables. About two o'clock in the morning, a man left. He reappeared carrying a plate filled with apple slices. 
Now I am going to start a healthy diet, he said. What are you going to do that for, asked Popeye. Well, we're all going to be dead by seven o'clock, unfortunately. That's great, Mandanza said. I certainly thought so. He could hear the preparations on the shortwave radio. He heard a special forces unit finally arrived and relieved the reluctant general outside. Then he heard various users reading themselves, calling in with their bizarre code names, checking off their readiness, hallucinating of some crazy drug. Mendoza was familiar with this unit of Nesbits who, rather than fight drugs, would be taking the drugs themselves and other drugs mixed with them to get fucked up. So when he relied, Mendoza relied on the guerrilla group and the M19 group who rarely used many drugs at all, that's when Mendoza stormed the Palace of Justice and taken 300 hostages including of the nation's Supreme Court. When the government took the ministry back by force, the raid killed more than 100 people, including 11 justices. This disaster had prompted a creation of American trained special forces unit recruited both the army and national police. Shortly after the unit was formed, Mendoza was at his office in Borgata when he got an emergency phone call telling him that the US Embassy was being violated. The US Embassy was being violently attacked and attacked by armies of men, mainly the guerrillas and the M19. He found a friend at the Embassy who told him, it's all quiet there, then could it be the ambassador's residence, Mendoza asked. I checked his friend said, he called seconds later, no, Adoro, the ambassador's residence is quiet, it's your building that's under attack. The police were conducting a raid at his own apartment building nearby. Months later when it was all sorted out, it was revealed that the new special forces unit had been hired by a rich Bogata, emerald and drug dealer to assassinate a rival and make it look like a government operation. The plan had backfired because the primary target of the hit had crawled through the ceiling and escaped. Every other person in the suite had been killed. The ensuring scandal the unit had been disbanded its leadership fired. It had only recently been reconstructed and this new mission here at the La Cathedral was the first time President Gaviria had ordered them into action. Mendoza was now terrified being on the receiving end of its assault. He knew that unlike the timid army brigade these men would attack furiously. Can I go outside for a look? He asked his captors. They let him step onto the porch. Sunlight had begun to illuminate from the fog.
but he could not see for more than a few feet beside him just out the door to Escobar's room was a table covered with machine guns and ammunition. He took off the poncho even though he was freezing and stood out in the cold hoping that the attacking forces would see his business suit and not shoot at him. As he stood there shaking he heard the first shots of the assault. There were explosions and screams. His captors pulled him inside and began to plead with him. Doctor, please, they are going to kill us. Help us. I've been telling you that all night Mendoza shouted at them. Now it's too late. He crawled towards the bathroom to try to curl himself up behind the toilet. The sturdiest fixture but then decided it was too dangerous there because there was so much glass that would shatter. He crawled back out to the living room where Navaz and one of the prison guards were crouching. Mendoza was terrified. The sounds of shooting and explosions was louder now. In a kind of trance, he stood and tried to walk out of the room, hoping to see the attacking forces and speak with them but a prison guard screamed at him to get on the floor unless he wanted to be killed. He tried to move Pablo's mattress to get behind it, but it was too heavy. Even with one of the gunmen helping, they could not budge it. So Mendoza, exhausted and numb with cold and fear, gave up. He stretched prone on the floor and waited. He looked at the gunman arrayed around him in the room. This is how I am going to die. And he did not die. A concussion grenade exploded just outside the room and indistinctively recoiled. A gun barrier was jammed against his forehead. The invader, a black Colombian special forces sergeant, didn't shoot. The gun was empty as it was put to his head. A powerful man, he threw the vice minister against the wall and sat on him. Mendoza stayed pinned under the man who was sat on him as he was hearing all the shootings and explosions. When it was clear now that it was Pablo Escobar's gunman that had surrendered the room without a fight, the sergeant turned to him. Mendoza saw a kind face with deep wrinkles the eyes. We are going to try to get you out of here, the soldier said. Just look at my boot. Don't think of anything, just look at my boot. He began crawling and Mendoza followed. They crawled out to the porch and behind a short brick wall, past the row of doors. When I tell you to run, you run, the sergeant ordered. On cue, Mendoza leapt up and took off uphill for the main gate as fast as he could go, arms churning, blinded by the smoke, confused by the explosions and the gunfire. The officer ran behind him shouting, Run, 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 and Mendoza sprinted faster than he ever had in his life.
he ran so recklessly and hard that he careened into a wall breaking two ribs but on adrenaline kept on running in such lunging panic that he felt no pain and would discover the broken bones only later when he stopped. He ran out the main gate and up the hill where General Pardo and his men were positioned right where he had left them hours before. General, is Escobar dead? Mendoza gasped. Pardo said nothing. He stared at him with a vacant, slightly amused expression and shrugged. It instantly dawned on Mendoza what had happened. Oh my God, Mendoza cried. He got away. How could he get away? Morris D. Busby of the U.S. Columbia awakened two phone calls early on Wednesday, July 22, 1992 at the house at Chevy Chase, Maryland, where he and his wife were staying with friends. Both calls were from the embassy in Bogota. The first was welcome news. Colombian President Cesar Gavira and had finally decided to move Pablo Escobar to a new prison, something Busby had been urging for some time, and transfer was underway. Shortly after the call came, another telling him that Pablo had somehow escaped through the entire brigade of the Colombian army, roughly 400 men, the ambassador, had spent too much time in Colombia to be surprised by that. He cut short his vacation and flew back to the Bogota later that morning. This was another embarrassing turn of events for Colombia. Might just be the break he needed ever since he had been signed to the embassy of Bogota the previous year handpicked for the assignment in the large part because it had become such a dangerous one. Busby had been eager to make an example of Pablo Escobar but was frustrated by the drugs boss deal with the government. He was the most notorious drug trafficker in the world, perched on a spectacular Andorra's mountain top running his cocana business, surrounded and protected by Colombian army. Current estimates were that 70 to 80 tons of cocaine were being shipped from Colombia to the United States every week, and Pablo controlled the bulk of it. At the presidential palace later that same day, Busby found President Gavira Furiously pacing in his office, Gavira had been up all night receiving one outrageous report after another. The whole episode illustrated his powerlessness. It taken more than two years, hundreds of lives, hundreds of millions of dollars to hound the murderous drug billionaire into his surrender. Now in one night it had all come undone, waiting for the president's Lamatoras with Joe Toft and the flinty DEA officer and Bill Wagner, the political secretary 
who was in fact Bogota's CIA station chief. Gaviria was fed up. He had been living with the threat of Pablo Escobar for years. All the time he campaigned for president, he had expected to be killed by Pablo Escobar. He had seen him in person only once in 1983, the day Pablo had taken his seat in Congress. The short, mild manner economist found hope on taking office two years before Pablo to just go away at least for a while. Colombia was in the midst of rewriting its construction and enormously important and historic task that could establish a stable under guiding for the nation for the first time since the La Valencia a century ago. The rebels in the mountains and the jungles were on the run. The government had ended, at least temporarily, the raging narco-violence by striking their deal with Pablo, a new constitution assuring democratic representation and addressing some of the long-simmering land-use issues of heart of civil war would strengthen the state and further disarm the guerrillas and would ensure an impressive legacy for Gavira. The last thing he needed was for this damned outlaw to be running loose once again, setting off his truck and car bombs and unleashing his Sicaros, sowing fear, corruption and dissent, that Pablo been able to simply vanish from a maximum security prison was a huge international setback, confirming all the world's assumptions about the country. It made Colombia look like a na cosanceri, a cover-up place. The president was sure of one thing. This was the last time he and the country would be humiliated by Pablo Escobar. They would be more dears, no more special prisons. Pablo would be hunted down and killed. It was a terrible thing to hunt down a man as you would an animal, but now there was no other way. Pablo was a criminal and a terrorist. With no restraints, no boundaries, he could do anything and he would do anything. The president continued to pace and vent. Who had ever had to face down a criminal like this? What country had ever been held hostage like this by one terrible man? What leader of a nation of 27 million people ever felt his own life was at stake in the pursuit of a criminal. Someone with power to walk right out of prison through the entire brigade of an army. An entire brigade. Bushy used the president's gusty temper. He admired Gavia's courage, but he did not find him an especially charismatic man squeaky voice, moody and introspective. Gavier didn't convoy much that obviously impressive or presidential to the ambassador. 
even do 